Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come now to drink from the deep well of your word. May we come thirsty to listen, to learn, to understand. May we not simply hear and turn away with minds full of knowledge, but with lives unchanged. But Father, we pray that your word would work deeply upon our hearts, that you would shape us as the potter shapes the clay, so that our whole selves, mind, affections, and will would be transformed. Strengthen our faith in you, our love for you, and our obedience to you as we receive your word proclaimed to us. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll please open your Bibles to our sermon text, returning this morning to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 795. So Zechariah chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, gold, and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne." And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jodiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. After spending the last two weeks in looking at Old Testament prophecies of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we return to our study of the book of Zechariah. This is a change, but in many ways, the passage before us this morning may seem like a continuation of our Advent series. Because while it's not a prophecy specifically of the birth of Jesus Christ, it is still a prophecy of the coming of the Messiah. So this passage shares many similarities to our Advent series, our Advent passages. But one difference is that this prophecy of the coming Messiah comes in the form of a symbolic action. A symbolic action. The Lord instructs Zechariah to crown the high priest Joshua. Then this symbolism, the symbolism of this action is explained, revealing to us how this points forward to the coming of the shoot, Jesus Christ, who will be both a king and a priest. 
And this comes at a time in Israel's history when they were without a king. They were ruled over by oppressive foreign rulers. And though they had a high priest, as we saw back in chapter 3, he was far from perfect. He needed to be cleansed by the Lord. They needed at that time the same thing which you and I need today. A perfect, righteous king to guard and protect and to shepherd. They needed what you and I need. A holy priest to make peace between you and your God. That is who Zechariah prophesies here. And this is what Jesus Christ, our royal priest, came to fulfill. We'll work through our passage this morning in three parts. First, we'll look at the symbolic action, the crowning of Joshua. Then, second, we'll look at the prophetic explanation of this. And then third, the memorial and confirmation. So first, the symbolic action, crowning the high priest Joshua. Passage opens in verse 9, And the word of the Lord came to me. And here we see a transition in the book. If you recall, after six visions filled with eight night, six chapters filled with eight night visions, now we've moved out of that section, and Zechariah is now receiving word revelation from the Lord. And so this passage serves as a bridge between the night visions and the oracles which will be contained in chapters 9 through 14. Now in those oracles, there will be several more messianic prophecies, but perhaps none so full and direct as this one before us this morning. Meredith Klein goes so far as to call this passage the central hinge upon which the entire book turns. So what does the Lord say to Zechariah? First, he's directed to three exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, exiles who had recently returned from Babylon. He's to meet them at the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah, who was likely a priest, a temple official. And this may have even been a storehouse in the temple to collect offerings for the Lord. Now, these returned exiles had brought with them silver and gold, and it was probably not just their own personal offerings, but they had likely been sent with an offering from a larger group in Babylon. And from this gold and silver, Zechariah would craft a crown. Now, here we see a repeat of a previous biblical pattern. Just as Israel had come out of Egypt in the Exodus, they had plundered the Egyptians, and then they contributed their gold to building the tabernacle. Now these men, they come out of the exile and they contribute their gold and silver for the Lord's work. And in the end, we see that this crown will be placed in the temple. Now in the Bible, a crown symbolizes exactly what you would expect. It is a symbol of royal honor and authority. But the next command breaks your expectations. You would expect that Zechariah would be commanded to go and crown Zerubbabel. Do you remember Zerubbabel? He is descended from the line of David. He is serving as the governor of Judah. The Jews would have expected him, or at least one of his descendants, to serve as their next king. But surprisingly, the Lord directs Zechariah to place this crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Joshua is a Levite. He's not of the tribe of Judah. He's not descended from David. He has no 
royal aspirations. And recall, he had not even been that much of a high priest. As we saw in chapter 3, it was Joshua who stood before the Lord clothed in excrement-stained garments, with Satan standing right by his side, ready to accuse him. It was the Lord in his grace who removed those filthy rags and covered him in pure festal robes and placed a clean turban on his head. But now, having already seen this symbolic vision in which Joshua received clothing of great significance, symbolizing his justification, now we have a symbolic action in which he receives a new, a different kind of clothing, a crown of silver and gold. It was also in chapter 3, verse 8 that we read, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, For they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. We saw in that verse that Joshua and his fellow priests were men of a sign. Men pointing to someone else. Pointing to a future one to come. Namely, the Lord's servant, the branch. And as I said then, this Hebrew term for the branch is better translated the shoot. It refers to a new shoot sprouting forth from the cut-off stump of David, a new ruler arising from his line. So while branch is the traditional term, it's used in the ESV because it goes back to the King James, it doesn't have that dynamic power found in the concept of the shoot shooting forth with new life. Now as Zechariah crowns Joshua, we see this term, it comes up again here in explanation for the significance of this action. But before we look at the explanation here in words, just look at the action itself. A priest is crowned like a king. What could this possibly mean? Could it be a sign that one is coming who will be both a priest and a king? And yet, this goes against the grain in Israel, where these two offices are always kept distinct. It's just like in our country today with the separation of the three branches of the government. You have the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. In Israel, you have prophets, priests, and kings. These are distinct offices, always to be kept separate. And so you have, for example, the sin of Uzziah. The story is told in full in Second Chronicles 26, 16 through 21, but let me just summarize it for you briefly. In his pride, Uzziah presumed to burn incense on the altar in the temple of the Lord. Not only is this a task that is reserved for priests, but as a non-priest, Uzziah should not have even entered into the holy place where the incense altar was. When Uzziah did this, the Lord struck him with leprosy, and he had to dwell alone the rest of his days. Now this is just... As you see him crowned, this is your immediate thought. But we see this conjecture is, concern, is confirmed in the explanation. So as Zechariah is placing the crown on Joshua's head, the Lord gives him a prophetic utterance with which to explain its meaning. As prophecy is given in verses 12 and 13, it describes the coming shoot in seven descriptive phrases. And the best way to understand it is simply work through it, phrase by phrase, one at a time. 
Now, as I do so, I'm going to use my own translation. It differs very slightly from the ESV, but you can find it by following along with the headings in the outline found in your bulletin. Verse 12 opens, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold a man, his name is the shoot. This opening phrase may initially sound to you like Zechariah is describing the high priest Joshua as the shoot. But every other place in the Old Testament where the same phrasing is found, it's quite clear from the context that the speaker is not referring to the person that he is speaking to, but he's rather describing a third person. And I believe, and almost all scholars agree, the same is the case here, and you can tell that from the context. For we know from Zechariah chapter 3 that Joshua is clearly distinguished from the shoot. Joshua is a sign pointing to the shoot, and the same is the case here. We also know from all the references to the shoot in Isaiah and Jeremiah that he must be a descendant of David. For example, we read in Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous shoot, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. So as Zechariah crowns Joshua here, he directs his attention to behold another man, a coming shoot of whom Joshua is only a sign. Second, Zechariah prophesies, for he shall shoot up from below. On one hand, this is obviously using the imagery of a new sapling shooting forth from a stump, just as prophesied in Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's on one hand. But on the other, it's also using a Hebrew idiom. Coming up, shooting up from below. It refers to a king's son taking his father's place. It refers to royal succession. And so this is predicting a new king in David's royal line. A third description stands at the very center of the whole passage. It's repeated twice for emphasis. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Indeed, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord. Now here we have a clearly royal activity. In ancient times, it was always the crowning achievement of any king. Once he had secured the borders, he had established peace to build great buildings. It was King David's heart desire to build a temple for the Lord. But it was his son Solomon the man of peace who actually accomplished it. Now here with this central description of the branch, we can begin to ask this question, what is the identity of the shoot? Since Zechariah also clearly prophesied that it was Zerubbabel who would build the temple, and we know this was in fact fulfilled, some interpreters believe that Zerubbabel was the shoot. Zerubbabel was of the Davidic line, a grandson of Jehoiachin, and he did rule, at least in the limited sense, that he was a governor 
of the province of Judah. But he was no king. He had no royal majesty. He was no priest. He did not usher in an age of peace. The most we can say about Zerubbabel is that he was a type of Christ, a shadow, a forerunner of the glorious one to come. We cannot conclude that Zerubbabel was the shoot. But that also means that a different temple project must be in view here. Even as Zechariah and his contemporaries, Zerubbabel himself, were rebuilding the temple in their own days, we must ask the question, could they have understood that the Messiah was coming with an even greater temple to build? Yes, I believe that they could, for they had prophecies like Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And it goes on. Here we see a vision of a temple that is beyond anything that could be built merely by human hands, but that could only be achieved by a supernatural act of God. It's a similar prophecy found in Micah chapter 4. They also had Ezekiel's vision in chapters 40 through 42, in which he beholds a temple which is far grander than the one they were in the midst of building. From these and other passages, they could have deduced that the Messiah was coming to build a new temple that would far surpass in glory the temple that they were building in their own day. And yet, I don't know that they could have known exactly what shape this new temple would take until Jesus Christ, the shoot, actually came and revealed it to them. For after Zerubbabel's temple is made obsolete, when the temple veil is torn in two from top to bottom at Christ's crucifixion, Christ is then raised from the dead, and he begins to build his new temple. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2. This new temple is built not of finely cut limestone but built of living stones, built of the people of God, as the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And Jesus continues to build today, both here and now. But we also get a glimpse of the finished product, of the new Jerusalem, that glorious temple city, in Revelation 21 and 22. The shoot shall build the temple of the Lord. Of course, we have only glimpses of this. Oh, sorry. Fourth, he shall bear royal majesty. Of course, we have only glimpses of this during Christ's first coming. For he comes clothed in humility. He rides into Jerusalem on a humble colt, and yet the people make a carpet of their cloaks and palm branches as they sing his praises, Hosanna to the son of David. 
He is clothed in royal purple before his crucifixion. This is done to mock him. Then he is crowned, but it is a crown of thorns pressed into his brow. And yet just before this, he prays to his father in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he will return in glory and majesty according to Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The shoot bears royal majesty. As we come to the last section of verse 13, we must take the fifth, sixth, and seventh descriptive phrases together. And he shall sit and rule by his throne, and he shall be a priest by his throne, and the council of peace shall be between the two. In order to understand these three phrases, we must first ask and answer one key question. Who are the two at the very end of verse 13? Clearly, one of them is the shoot. But the only other person mentioned in these verses is the Lord himself. When it says, he shall build the temple of the Lord. And so we can conclude that the council of peace will be between the shoot and the Lord. The two descriptions before this speak of the shoot ruling on the Lord's throne. And serving as a priest on the Lord's throne. And this all brings to mind... A key messianic psalm, Psalm 110, which we read earlier. This is the psalm of David, which speaks of Jesus Christ, uh, which Jesus Christ applies to himself, which speaks of the Messiah as both a king and a priest, that is, a royal priest. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verses 1 and 2. Jesus is, from his birth, of the line of David, he is declared to be king of Jews from his very birth by the visit of the wise men. Even at his crucifixion, this is the charge placed above him that he was the king of the Jews. Now, it may have seemed like he was a failed king, hanging on a cross rather than sitting on a throne, But as he testified at his trial before the Sanhedrin, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, Matthew 26, 64. He was crucified, but he is risen and he is ruling even now at the right hand of the Lord Almighty. So fifth, he shall sit and rule by his throne. And sixth, he shall be a priest by his throne. Now in these, I'm saying by his throne, because that is an accurate translation of the Hebrew here, but also because as both Psalm 110 and the New Testament make clear, Christ serves as a king and a priest at the right hand of his father on high, at the right hand of his father's throne. Back in chapter 3, we saw that the coming of the shoot looked forward to the day when the Lord would remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. And here we see a little bit more of how he will do this. He will do this as a priest. 
And combined with Psalm 110.4, we know he will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest who is also a king. Now, the fulfillment of all this is explained even more clearly when we get to the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. He lays it all out. It brings together all that Jesus does, how he fulfills Psalm 110, how he is the, the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. As we read in Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.12. It was as a priest that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins on the cross. And it is as a priest that he continues to intercede on your behalf. And the seventh and final description of the shoot, the council of peace shall be between the two. This presents a picture of a king ruling in perfect harmony with the Lord his God. And of course, we see that this is, describes the way that Jesus is in perfect harmony with his father. The council of peace between father and son will issue forth in peace and well-being for all of his people. As we look at these seven descriptions of the shoot, isn't it incredible that all this was symbolically depicted and then prophesied 500 years beforehand when Zechariah placed the crown on the head of the high priest Joshua. I know as I've gone over this, it's a little bit easy to get lost in the details here in verses 12 and 13. There's a lot of details in these seven descriptions. But the main point of it all is this. The crowning of a priest. It points forward to the coming of one who will be both priest and king. And that is fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is only because he is both priest and king, that he can offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for your sins on the cross. This then brings us to part three this morning, a memorial and a confirmation. Verse 14, and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Cain, the son of Zephaniah. Zechariah crowns Joshua the high priest. He prophesies over him concerning the shoot, but then the crown, it's taken away and placed permanently in the temple as a memorial, in particular for these four men. The crown hanging in the temple was to be a perpetual reminder that the shoot was coming, that God's promise still stood, and that he would be faithful to fulfill it. Even though it would be a little over 500 years in coming, the Lord always keeps his word. And finally, we have verse 15. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, those who are far off could simply refer to the exiles from Babylon who are returning to help build the temple at that time. This would include men like Helam, Tobijah, and Jediah. I think this verse has something grander in view, a grander project. 
For just before Zechariah, just before this, Zechariah was prophesying of the greater temple that the Messiah would build. And this living temple will extend to the very ends of the earth. It's on the day of Pentecost that the words of this verse will be echoed when Peter declares, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, Acts 2, 38 and 39. Then when Paul writes of the inclusion of the Gentiles in Ephesians 2, he describes them twice as those who were far off, but whom Christ has now brought near through the gospel. And so Christ is building his temple with those who are near and those who were far off. And as these things are fulfilled, it confirms the word of the Lord through the prophet Zechariah. This morning we've seen that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophesied shoot of David. When Zechariah placed that crown on the high priest Joshua's head, he cried out, Behold, a man, his name is the shoot. And he described his royal majesty, how he would build the Lord's temple, reign as both priest and king, in perfect harmony with the Lord his God. But who would have expected it to be fulfilled in this way? John chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! And the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And yet he went to the cross willingly in perfect obedience to the will of his Father in perfect harmony with him as our great high priest to present himself as an offering for the sins of his people, for your sins and for mine. And having lain in the grave three days, with the authority of a king, he took up his life again, for death could not hold him. Our great king and high priest has conquered sin and death. He has now ascended on high to reign at the right hand of the Father in heaven until the day when he shall come again. Behold the man, the shoot is his name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is our high priest who has offered once for all the perfect sacrifice offered up himself to make propitiation for our sins and to secure for us an eternal redemption. And we thank you also that he is our highly exalted king who has all power and all authority, who rules over all for the sake of his people. Help us, Father, never to fear because he reigns. Help us never to worry because he is always interceding for us. And so we can rest secure knowing that you are sovereign and that Christ is on the throne. 
And so we praise you, for Christ is our royal priest, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.